morning, everybody. We are uh, so glad that you are here this morning. Uh, it uh, appears the sun is peeking out uh, just to taunt you, Rex, and to encourage the rest of us. We are glad to see that. We are continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. If you are new, we are going through this letter that Paul wrote, a circular letter to uh, a number of the churches, uh, but uh, attributed to the Ephesians, sent to the Ephesians, but meant to be spread to many. And so we are in the third chapter of the book of Ephesians, and we will be reading uh, verses 14 onward to 21, and here to help us with that is Dylan. Ephesians 3:14 to 20. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. So I have told you before I am neither a camper or the son of a camper, but I do enjoy hiking. The first time that I did any serious hiking was in the Rockies. I had an appointment to be at a conference near Lake Louise, and I wanted to hike the Rockies. So I drove in from Vancouver through the Rockies, stopped in at Banff because I knew nothing about hiking, stopped in at a store that was known to help outfit hikers and said, I'm a newbie, help. (laughs) They laughed. And then they asked me what kind of hiking I was going to do. I said, pretty new, so easy to intermediate. And they said, okay, we will outfit you with the minimum. You're going to need a water bottle, some energy bars, some sunscreen, and some good hiking boots. That ought to do you for the kind of hiking you will do. And so they sold me that. They bought, I bought that, and I took their advice. I took the trail that they had told me to, t- to take. They said it was going to be several hours. I need to stop grab some energy bars sometime in the middle, enjoy the view and keep going, fording several streams. I was like, I'm going to get my new hiking boots wet. Maybe I'll just go barefoot. They said, don't go barefoot through those streams. Just leave the boots on. They'll dry. And so I did. I went up the trail. I forded some streams. So glad I had those hiking boots on. Stopped partway through with other people. Had an energy bar and the view I saw there was ridiculous. I thought, maybe I should just stop here. I'm tired. It's been several hours. But I remembered them saying, persevere, because the views only get better as you go higher. So I persevered, and I kept going up and up. And finally, I got to the destination of this hiking trail, and it was a saddle. On the one side was a range of mountains and a couple of glaciers that were spectacular. On the other side was the lake. I had never seen such beauty. I stood there stunned into silence and noted the silence around me as otherwise socially minded Canadians were struck speechless in awe of the glory that we saw. 
the only words I heard was the quiet, almost breathless, wow, that came out of several voices. I sat, and I absorbed, and I sat, and I looked, and the longer I looked, the more I wanted to keep looking until I was so full, I didn't know what to do, and I sat and looked. And as people left, I communed with God. The only description I can give you that comes close to how I felt is, my soul was full. I submit to you, wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith, we want to have our soul full. We long to be filled with awe and wonder and glory. This is our heart's true longing. And this is Paul's true prayer. Here, Paul prays that our souls would be full. And while he does that, Paul says, you will get that if you get the power, the true gospel power that I am praying for you, that is available for you, that God wants for you, and that most of us don't understand. And so this morning, I'm going to look, and we're going to look together at a kind of power that is not spoken of in our culture, the kind of power we hear nothing of in our headlines, but the kind of power that stills you, that satisfies you, that fills you, that changes you, that your heart truly longs for. We're going to look at that now. We're going to look, firstly, at the source of that power. Then we're going to look at the nature of that power. And then we're going to look, if we have time, and I hope we do, at the purpose of that power. The source, the nature, and the purpose. Firstly, the source of true power. In verse 14, Paul says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His inner being, so that, power so that, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And there it is. This is the power that Paul prays for. Paul is finishing his great song of praise in the beginning parts of Ephesians for God's salvation. And now he's praying in light of these truths that the Ephesians, and therefore all of us, should experience this fullness through this true power which gives us the ability. And Paul here discloses how true power, gospel power, is achieved. And what he says is, it is not achieved. It is received. True power, he says, is a gift. Look at verse 16. According to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power. Here Paul is saying, power is rooted in God, not us. God is the source of all true power, the source of all true wisdom, all true beauty, all true knowledge. He has all things. He fills all things. And He's filled with glory and beauty and wisdom and knowledge and power. 
So Paul says, from the riches of his glory, out of the abundance of his generosity, he is willing to give you as a gift this kind of power to strengthen you, but you don't earn it and you don't achieve it. It's a gift. Now, how does that change things? Think for a moment about current cultural ideas and your own ideas of power. We normally think of power as something we achieve. And when you think of power as something you achieve, what kind of response does that bring out in you? Satisfaction. Pride. But if you think of power primarily as a gift given to you out of the generosity of someone else, what kind of response does that evoke in you? Gratitude. Love. And it leads to a question. Men and women, what would this world be like if our primary understanding of power is that it was a gift freely and unconditionally given? How would our world be different if power was something we were grateful for, not something we thought we'd achieved? There's a second question that this raises. What kind of God would give us so freely this kind of power? God here is described in ways that many Christians feel comfortable with, but if you are here and you're from another faith tradition or you are from no faith tradition, you know that these words are at the very least intriguing because look at how he describes it. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Hmm. Bow my knees. Father. These things don't come together that easily. Father is a relation of deepest intimacy and affection as it's being used here. He is the father we can call daddy, Abba. This is the Christian view of a God incredibly intimate with us, incredibly loving of us, incredibly generous toward us. But he bows his knees. And we who have 2,000 years of Christian tradition of getting on our knees think nothing of it. But an original reader, especially one who was Jewish and knew Paul as a Pharisee, would be stunned because Jews don't bow on their knees for prayer. They stand. Standing is the normal way to pray. Kneeling is very unusual. One notable exception for you theology types, catch this one. Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 8, when he prays to dedicate the newly built temple knelt. It says in 1 Kings 8.54, when Solomon had finished all his prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out. Here, Paul, who has just finished saying that you and I who are Christians are the spiritual temple of God built on the foundation of the gospel, kneels to pray for that temple. What an interesting connection. But what is most surprising is this combination of kneeling in prostrate reverence before a God you call Daddy. No religion I know combines this idea of infinite transcendent holiness and infinite imminent closeness, nearness, and humility. When you think of God, what do you think of Him as? Do you think of him as far off and holy, as very unapproachable? 
most monotheistic religions tend to think of him that way. He's way up there. He's unapproachable. Or do you think of him as someone you could have a pint with at the local pub, you know, like a friend? Most of us don't think that way. But the gospel shows him as both ways. In the gospel, you face a God who is infinitely holy. Not holy. Not even holy, holy. But as Isaiah 6 tells us, the cherubim around the throne call him holy, holy, holy. Repeated to the third point of repetition is the Hebrew way of amplifying something to its loudest. It's bold, it's underlined, it's capitalized, and there's a bunch of emojis after it. This is God is holy. And yet, this is the God who says, come to me and call me daddy. Men and women, how do you approach a God who is unimpeachably holy? You don't. You let him come and approach you in infinite humility. And in Jesus Christ, that is the God we have. A God who has become one of us. The infinitely transcendent God of creation has clothed himself in humanity and now become one of us. People could see him. They could touch him. They could torture him. They could kill him. He became one of us and then became one with us taking our sin and our guilt on the cross. He became a curse for us. He became one of us to become one with us, to be our scapegoat for us, that we could be one with God. What a beautiful story. Now, if you're a Christian, this sounds familiar. But if you're as new to it as they were, this is astonishing. The infinitely transcendent creator of the universe has become a vulnerable human being who could become rejected, despised, tortured, and crucified. To know that God in that way, giving a gift of power in that free, unconditional way is the foundation and source of true human power. Knowing that God And I need to ask you, do you know him? Do you know that God in that way? If you're a Christian and you know that God that way, this is a call for you to ask him for that power. This week I was feeling melancholy. I was um, talking to someone outside about how I tend to create clouds of my own just from my own personality. And I wasn't feeling this great, Lake Louise shining moment that I had in my illustration. So I asked him for it. And it came slowly. But it came. Charles Spurgeon, talking about coming before God in prayer, says this. With what humility should you draw near to God? Familiarity there can be, but let it not be without reverence. Boldness there should be, but let it not be impertinent. We are still on earth, and He in heaven. We are still worms of the dust, and He the everlasting. Before the mountains were brought forth, He was God, and if all created things should pass away, He would still be the same. I'm afraid we do not bow as we should before the eternal majesty 
Let us ask the Spirit of God to put us in a right frame of mind and heart that every one of our prayers may be a reverential approach to the infinite majesty above. Yet, he continues, the right spirit into which we should approach the throne of grace is that of unstaggering confidence. Who shall doubt our King? Who dares question the imperial word? This surely is the place for a child to trust their father, the source of human power is God himself, and he offers us true power if we will but ask and if we know him as father. If you don't, come to him as father through Jesus, his son. If you do, come through Jesus to him and ask him boldly. For that power. Secondly, let's look at the nature of power. So that, he says, excuse me, <clears throat> so that, this is what the nature of the power, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here's the nature of the power. Rooted and grounded in love. Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. This passage is a prayer that we would have the power or hear the strength to be able to understand something. Paul says power is a gift, but it's a particular kind of gift. It's not the gift to make others do what we want them to do. It's a gift to make us become who He wants us to become. Is this the same view of power our culture has? Oh, no. In our culture, power is primarily viewed, primarily, I'm being a bit reductionistic, as power over outside forces. Power to get people to do what you want them to do. Power to get structures to conform to what you think is right. Power to get the environment to treat us appropriately and properly. Power is primarily seen as power over that which is outside of us. And so here, we see power in its cultural form. Now, what the gospel says is that power is very different. And there's a reason for that. Our culture, while it's got some really accurate views of power, there are some weaknesses to it. Firstly, our understanding of power dynamics primarily as we see social justice is that we're going to change who's at the table of power. Yeah? Primarily what's been at the table of power in North America, for example, are straight white males. And it has created a corrupt society in the view of our present culture. And there's some truth to the corruption that's in our society, no doubt about it. And there's some truth that it has favored those in power. So our response is simply to change who's at the table of power. We're going to remove those voices. We're going to put other voices in, voices that have been disadvantaged and oppressed. And so new voices at the table, that's our solution. But do you see the weakness of that solution? Power corrupts. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Go to the countries of the world that have people of different ethnicities, different genders, different languages that are in governing power and ask, oh, is there any corruption in them? And there is. Because power corrupts by removing restraints on what is inside of us. And so if all we do is change the place at the table. We're not dealing with the root issues of power. And so how do we deal with those places at the table and those issues of power? 
Well, what we do after we've changed places at the table is we look at people and we say, now value this. And if you don't, we'll shame you and we may cancel you. Again, it's an outside-in approach to power transformation. What happens is if you don't conform, we will shame you culturally, and if need be, we will cancel you possibly vocationally. And so what happens is fear is the agent of promoting values and justice, of using power appropriately. But what happens when fear is the primary agent of change? It creates outward conformity but inward resentment. It creates closeting but not transforming people. Their hearts aren't changed by fear. And so this answer that we have found in our culture, while well-intended, has deep, defective flaws because it's not dealing with the inner heart. Let's talk about the inner heart for a second. If I define power as the ability to do whatever I want to and to conform my environment to let me do whatever my emotions and desires want me to, which is a pretty typical cultural expression, it doesn't realize that my heart is filled with both good things and dark things, that my conscience battles my darkest lusts, that my own ethical moral standards are disappointment, disappointed at some of the thoughts and desires and things that I do. True human power needs to be inward human power. And that's where the gospel talks about it here. Look what it says. It says, I hope you get power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you, if you're a Christian, you think, oh, that sounds like someone finally gets Jesus into their life. They prayed the sinner's prayer or something. No, no, no. Here, the language is for Christians. And the word for dwelling here in the Greek, it's the strongest word for dwelling. It means to literally build roots and deepen your sense of being home. And so what it's saying here, men and women, is that Christ is being allowed to deepen His hold on your thoughts, on your emotions, and your heart. And then He says, and you being rooted and grounded in love. Do you hear that? He is saying this. Rooted, He's using a plant analogy. Grounded, he's using a foundational building analogy. He wants you to have Christ so impenetrate your heart that the neutrifying soil of God's love for you in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that neutrifying soil takes and gives your roots the power to flourish like a flower in a flower bed. You see what he's saying? He's saying this, men and women. Let the neutrifying soil of God's love for you poured out in the life and death of Jesus feed you. And then like a flower, let you unfold your beauty to the world as that love neutrifies your soul. And you know, if you ever see flowers, especially sunflowers, they, they tend to face the sun wherever it is, yeah? Because they want to get everything they can by, by, as it were, gazing at the sun every day. That's the analogy here, that you... And the neutrifying love of God may have the power to face the Son, the Son of God. And you may be able to see 
and grasp and capture and be thrilled by the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of Jesus for you and for me. Now, I, I, scholars have, have wondered about this, but this is the summit right here. The base camp, the halfway, was being rooted and grounded in love, but then he asked for a further power to get to that summit and just gaze at the glory of Jesus. Height, depth, breadth, length. What do those mean? But scholars have a lot of fun trying to figure out what they mean. Some of them are like, oh, you know, the cross is, goes up and down and east. And, and No, it could be that. We don't know. It could be a lot of things. Here's what a lot of scholars think, and I agree the depth of his love. How deep does his love go? How deep the Father's love for us, that he would send his only son. And his son would come into this broken, evil world and bear the evil and experience it and be rejected by it and then bear the sin and evil of the world on himself and let his father turn his own face away from the son he adores and pour out his judgment on Jesus so that the depth of our sin and darkness and human evil would be paid for by the depth of his sacrifice. That's how deep is his love. How high is his love? It takes you from the depth of pure guilt before God to the height of being his beloved, adored children, the throne room of God, which, which most of us fear as a place of holy judgment. And so we should, if you are a Christian, has been turned into a living room where you play and dance and jump into the arms of your Father and experience His love and His joy. The breadth of His love. It's as wide as wide can be. There is no you that is outside the parameters of the breadth of God's love. There is no thing you have done. There is no wickedness you have desired or thought of or fantasized about that you know you couldn't tell anybody that he doesn't know about. But his love is wide enough to forgive the most unforgivable of sins. The length of his love. Men and women, it's forever. God will never stop, never stop, never stop loving those upon whom he has set his love. He is infinite and he is eternal and as long as he is eternal, you are in his heart if you are a Christian and always shall be. The love he had for you when he went to the cross is the same love he has for you right now as he prays for you in heaven. It has not changed. It is infinite. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Implications. If you're here and you are investigating the Christian faith, this is a vastly different understanding of power than our, culturally, our culture generally gives us. I submit to you, though, it is a deeper, more transforming one. Could it be that you could experience this? There's something called attachment theory. It was developed in the late 1950s uh, by studying children and the way that they grew and the way that they developed emotionally and otherwise. And what attachment... Uh, those of you who know it, I'm going to brutally reduce it for the sake of the sermon. Attachment theory says that a child, to the degree that they feel attached to the adults who give care for them, they 
create healthy self-image, healthy understanding of the world, and they're, willing, they're able to go out and explore and experience and interact in the world in healthy and flourishing ways. The attachment you have, the security you have in the love that you have from those whose love you need frees you and empowers you to go out and flourish. That was developed in the late 1950s. Men and women 2,000 years ago, Paul was talking about that very idea right here, that you, being rooted by the attached love of your father, of his son, and of his spirit, you can have the security and the safety and the freedom to go out and flourish because it is what you need. If you're a Christian, I have an application for you. I ask you to drink for the thousandth, nay, the millionth time, the free, unconditional love of God and to be rooted in and to soak it in again and again. One of the things that happens here at at Grace Toronto is we we find people uh, early on in their faith journey, they really need the grace of God. They really understand that they've messed up. And so they love the grace of God and they love hearing it. And then you get to a period of, of maturing where you, you want to know your theology and you, you want to uh, know more about the Bible and you, you want to learn more things about how to interact with culture. You want stuff. You want facts. You want, you want this kind of very sort of give me information and give me what to do. I need, I need my church to be my personal trainer and I need it to be my, my encyclopedia, my Google. And so what happens is when we preach Jesus week by week, you kind of wonder if we're just talking for those newbies or those people who aren't Christians. But the older you get as a Christian and the more maturing you get, the more the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you about the deepest inclinations and longings of your heart and you begin to be weary of your own selfishness because it hasn't gone away. And though you don't have the same behavioral patterns as you did earlier on in your Christian faith, the things that you still have bother you ever more intensely because the Spirit sensitizes you. And the more mature you get as a Christian, the more you actually need to drink anew the grace and love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is for you the living water that it was when you were first a Christian. And so I say to you, wherever you are in your journey of faith, it's time for the drink. Drink and receive this power. Finally, the purpose of power. Why did Paul pray this? He said that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Men and women, when I was up there and I was enraptured and I was full, my soul was full, There was no room for anything else in my soul because it was full. All I had was a deep sense of the love and the glory of God. And that's the point. What you are filled with is what will drive you. Many of us gain power from our anxiety. We let our anxiety fuel us, and it works. It gives us a temporary but powerful burst of power. Anger fueled me for many years from my family of origin where anger was one of the few emotions that my father validated. 
Anger gave me a certain kind of fuel to get things done, and it gave me a certain kind of power. Pride, envy, the desire for sensual pleasure, the desire for success or money, they give you, they will fuel you for a while. I have been fueled by all of them in certain moments of my life, and so have you. But you know, don't you, after the fuel has worn off, how draining it was and how diminishing it was, how you didn't really like yourself while it happened, and you wished you could break the cycle of yourself for the future. These things tempt us. They can drive us. But they don't just go away by saying, you're bad. (laughs) Anxiety, you're bad, go away. That doesn't work. You ever met someone who has anxiety issues? It doesn't work. Ever met someone who has anger issues? I just have to look in the mirror and look at them. That never worked for me. I've known that my anger was dehumanizing, diminishing, corrupting, and not good for me for decades. You know what broke its power? I was in a small group of a church plant. We were reading an article by a man named Tim Keller who is now famous and has recently passed away. Before he'd published any books and any of us, any of you knew him, I was reading an article he wrote, and it changed my whole perspective on the Christian life because he quoted a centuries-old pastor named Thomas Chalmers who said this, the love of the world cannot be expelled or expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but may it not be replaced He used the word supplanted by the love of something which is more worthy than it. What cannot be destroyed can be dispossessed in your heart. One taste can be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of your heart. Men and women, if you want to break the power of anxiety or anger or pride or success as your driving fuel, you need to replace it. And the one new affection that Tim Keller quoted from Thomas Chalmers is this, the love of God in Christ that Paul is telling us, this is the one sure thing that will replace these other things in the center of your heart because the love of God, when it fills you, satisfies you at a level you have never experienced anywhere else. The multidimensional love of God meets the multidimensional realities of the world for you. Are you anxious? The eternal love of God, His deep love, comes to you and says, be still and gives you peace. Are you angry? The soaring love of God who came down and endured the injustice against his, Himself takes all that anger at injustice that you think is fueling you and it breaks it. Do you feel guilty? Is guilt fueling you? The gracious, unconditional love of God in paying for every sin you've ever had and ever will have, it frees you and replaces guilt. It is a much better replacement. Applications quickly. Firstly, wherever you are in your journey of faith, meditate much on the love that God has for you in Jesus. Find whatever pathway mediates that into your heart best. Some of you, it's music. Some of you, you get out in nature. For me, Lake Louise does it every single time. It's an expensive way to do it. But find the pathways that mediate 
and flow the love of God into the center of your heart. It might be conversations with others if you're relational. It may be podcasts. It may be meditation. Reading the Bible does it for me all the time because I read the Bible looking for the love of Christ in it. Do you not know, men and women, that Moses is simply pointing to Jesus? Jesus is the greater Moses who brought his people out of slavery into the promised land. Do you not know that Jesus is the greater king that David was pointing to? That Jesus is the true king that came to reign over all of his people? Sinless and perfect. Do you know that Jesus is whom the great high priests were pointing to because he in himself gave the great final sacrifice of his own body? Do you know that Jesus is the final Abigail who interceded for her idiotic husband whom she loved and got the king's grace? Do you know that Jesus is the final Israel who went into the desert and when Israel was tempted in the desert and failed, Jesus went into the desert for 40 days and didn't fail? Do you know that Jesus is the final Adam? Thank you, Stephen. Do you know that Jesus is the final Adam who never spilled his music stand? Jesus is the sum total of the whole Bible, and it's all speaking about him. My mentor, Jim Keller, whose death I have been mourning about a day or two before he died, said this to his family. I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. His heart was full. May ours be full too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the greatness of your love and the glory of your grace and the brilliance of your Son. May we drink deeply from him and love him. In Christ's name, amen. I have taken too long in speaking. I will answer your questions by personal text. We should now stand and respond to that love. Please stand.